I don't get frustrated, there's no need because I'm not asking more than once. I say it once, I follow through, I get the desired response. Using a training tool is very, very fair to the dog because I'm being so transparent, so clear with what I want. Welcome back. And thank you for listening to Honest to Dog Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Foley, head trainer and CEO of The Dog House. And I'm Jeff Gadway. Hi, Jeff Gadway. What are we talking about today? We're going to talk about training tools, how to use them, what ones are good, what ones are bad, and common mistakes. So what do you mean when you're talking about training tools? It's, it's something I hear you talk about with your clients and in group class quite a bit. But for those who aren't familiar with that terminology, what is a training tool? A training tool is anything that you can use to communicate effectively with your dog. Training tools we talk about a lot as ways of using pressure and release as a way of that communication. So is it fair to say then that not all things that people use with their dogs are training tools? You could maybe characterize a couple of different categories that there are training tools and then maybe accessories, for example. How would you compare those two buckets of, of devices? Yeah, agreed. There are training tools and then, like we talked about, accessories. So one really fulfills a job and another one is more a decorative piece. So an example could be a training tool, in my opinion, we use them all the time, is a slip lead. A, an accessory, it would be something like a collar, a flat collar on a dog. So a flat collar is really a necklace for your dog. It's a decorative piece. It looks cute. You can get them in different fashions and patterns and whatever. And they really are just to hold on to your dog's tags. So having their information, their, their address, their name, their rabies shots, well, all of that stuff. Got it. So what are some of the criteria that something needs to meet in order to you know, be considered a training tool. You mentioned a little earlier about communicating with your dog. So what are some of the things that that training tools have that maybe accessories don't have? I think this podcast is going to be a little bit tricky because it's such like an abstract notion and I'm so used to showing it concretely. What we mean by communication, what do we mean by pressure and release? And an example of that, what we do in our group class is I go around the room and I use a slip lead on a, on a client's arm I say, put this on. Let me know when you feel pressure on the leash. I usually start with a very light pressure and they're like, yeah, I feel that. And then I do way more intense pressure and they go, whoa, yeah, I feel that. And then I go to do soft soft pressure again. Um, And they almost brace themselves because I've just done a technically like a harsh correction on them. Um, And that's what most people, how they're using their, their leashes or whatever tool or accessory because they're not, effectively trained on it and they have no idea how to harness that power effectively. Pressure is when we put tension on the leash and then that release of pressure is also communication. So if you think about it, if I'm asking a dog to hold a sit, I can pull pressure up on a slip lead and I'm lifting the head above the shoulders and then the body communicates, okay, now we'll sit down because that's what the body does naturally, it lifts its head above shoulders, then tucks its bum and sits. So when the dog is in a sitting position, I release the pressure. So the release of pressure, I call it a thank you. It's like a cookie. It's positive reinforcement. And so that's how I communicate, please, please sit. Thank you very much. So how does a training tool factor into the delivery of that intention? If the intention in that instance is I want my dog to sit and I'm pulling up on the leash to, as you say, get the head above the shoulders and to start that movement of the 
hindquarters down towards the ground and then I release the tension once the dog has complied and I'm saying thank you. What role does a tool play in that? Like why is it so important to, to use an effective training tool to reach that outcome? That's a really great question. And what I see a lot of the time is people ask a dog to do something and it's numerous times and there's zero follow through. So they'll say, sit, 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 sit. Wait, Baker, I told you to sit. Baker, you better sit. You know what I'm asking. And they have this whole long conversation with the dog and they really don't get anywhere. And then they might end up like pushing the dog's hindquarters down and forcing it. Um, versus if I say sit once and the dog might be kind of thinking about it, um, I can just easily follow through with that leash pressure. And when I say pressure, I'm not yanking up, lifting the dog's feet off the ground, nothing like that. I really want to use the least amount of pressure possible to get the dog to comply. I'm really just suggesting, hey, you should probably sit. <laughs> That's a good option for you right now. I don't get frustrated. There's no need because I'm not asking more than once. I say it once, I follow through, I get the desired response. And so it can be really, really clear, effective, and consistent every time. You don't get that consistency when you're just asking. And even if you're asking using a treat, like a treat, yes, could technically be a training tool, but I don't use a treat to bribe. I use a treat to reward. As you talk about that, I think about, you know, the role of an affecting, effective training tool is ensuring that the message you want to deliver reaches your dog in the appropriate way. It's kind of like if you're not using an effective training tool, if you're just using a flat collar, it's kind of like talking through a broken telephone, right? That the intention, the message that you want your dog to receive, if it doesn't have a clear pathway to reach the dog and be interpreted appropriately, there might be mis mixed signals or inconsistency as you, as you say. How do you make training really effective is execution, right? Follow through making sure that it's really, really black or white for the dog. Using a training tool is very, very fair to the dog because I'm being so transparent, so clear with what I want. Let's change gears a little bit. You, you mentioned off the top that this is a little bit of an abstract concept to, to grasp. So let's, let's make it really practical for people and talk about some of the different types of training tools that are out there and maybe some of the strengths that each one offer or the scenarios in which it might be really effective. Let's start with um, maybe your favorite training tool of the bunch, and perhaps even the most simple of the training tools, the slip lead. Can you explain to our listeners, you know, what is a slip lead? And then let's talk about why you really believe slip leads are a great training tool. So a slip lead, like you said, is super, super simple. It's essentially a leash and collar in one, right? So uh, the ones that we have at the daycare kind of look like a rope um, where it's got the handle on one side and then it has straight leash and then it opens back up into another loop and that loop is adjustable so it can fit over your dog's head or like we've talked about before twisting it once so making it a figure eight and putting it over the muzzle so it can also be adaptable into another tool making it kind of like a halty for a dog so i like that flexibility i also like the simplicity of it um, you can't really get anything easier than that for working with a dog. So I do find it's transferable. Really, it's about having your dog's mental attention and focus on you, not just about physically controlling them. My goal is like in my head, I should be able to walk this dog on dental floss as a slip lead. 
that's how minimal pressure I want to be using. Um, and so when using a slip lead, it's so effective. We can, like I said before, use fingertips only on that leash so that we can be really precise, we can be really fair, and we can use the minimal amount of pressure possible to get through to the dog. Does no, that explain it? it? It explains it perfectly. I love that. When thinking about slip leads, I've seen them in different thicknesses of, uh, of material, uh, and then also in different lengths, four foot lengths, six foot lengths. Are there any things that people need to consider when selecting the appropriate slip lead to use with their dog? I would consider the dog's size and weight for sure. I like using a very thin slip lead, um, kind of no matter what the size of the dog, just because, and I know you've mentioned this too, because of the accuracy of where it sits, but really it's preference for the person. I wouldn't use obviously a really thick one on a chihuahua or a small breed dog. If I'm doing follow the leader, I like having a longer one just because it gives dogs an option of where to be and I really have to train them into a heel. A shorter slip for a dog who you might be working really hard with, gaining control over and feeling like you have control and comfort in that, um, you might want a shorter leash. Yeah, when it comes to, to thickness for me, I think I've grown to prefer the the thinner leash because not only is it more precise, but I feel like it offers me more feedback through the leash. So I can feel what my dog is doing at the end of the leash more so than if it's a, a thicker gauge um, uh, slip leash. Yeah, I like that. Okay, let's move on down the spectrum then, and let's talk about the Martingale collar and uh, and leash. The Martingale is one that, that we were first introduced to with Carmen, and we used the Martingale for years and years before you went to Caesar Milan and were really introduced to the slip and trained on the slip. So um, for, for those who might not be familiar with that device, what's a Martingale, and, um, and, and why might somebody choose it? So a Martingale is part cloth or nylon and part chain unlike a slip it's not one directional the chain is connected so it, it almost makes like a triangle where it loops back to itself it's away from like a choke chain a choke chain is entirely chain obviously similar to a slip it is one directional there is automatic release when the, there's pressure dropped but there's no risk on a martingale of strangulation right so if it's sized right even at its 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 tightest point of pressure, your dog is not in any jeopardy of of strangulation, right? And and then when the pressure is released by relaxing the leash, that chain component, as you say, disengages. Yeah, and, opens and back up. Opens back up. A martingale, when sized appropriately, because it tightens up on itself, a dog can't slip out of it which I like. That there's a safety feature to that, just like with a slip too. A dog can't slip out of it because. Again, it closes up as there's tension put on the leash. Mm. But I, a con for me with the Martingale, and I was a huge believer in it, and it worked really, really well with training Carmen. I don't think it's the right tool for every dog. And a con for, for it is because of the chain component, it can be quite heavy, and it tends to sit lower on the neck than uh. where it should. Slip lead is so effective and amazing, largely because it stays where it should. It stays up top, top, top of neck. So we've talked about that in the one about the walk, why that's such an important placement because it's a sensitive area, which means we can use very little pressure. It's very highly effective for communication and I'm not battling a dog's entire strength against my bicep. 
I've heard you talk about with martingales before, another benefit might be that there's a little bit of an auditory stimulation mm-hmm. too. Can, can you explain what you mean by that? So when you do a correction on a martingale collar, which a correction is a intentional short kind of on off on the leash, like a pop uh, to the side, it shouldn't be back. Um, and the intention isn't to cause harm. The intention is to surprise the dog a little bit and why to the side is so you can make them go off balance so that they turn and they look at you right i'm not doing it really forcefully so that the dog is in pain but it does make a little noise right correction sound so there is like an auditory snap to it this is a good thing and a bad thing because that can make it a really powerful corrective tool to use, training tool to use for dogs. And it did work with Carmen. Carmen, we've talked about, was like happy-go-lucky, middle, front of the pack. That kind of tool only works well with dogs who have a certain confidence level. If you're doing that with a really sensitive dog, it is going to backfire. You're taking a sensitive dog using a pretty powerful tool. And if you overuse that, it will be to your detriment. You can break them a little. And like to that point, I want to mention that it's important to find a tool that works for you, that you're comfortable with, that works with and for your dog. And you use it properly because any tool can be misused and abused. And there is another trainer that always says, and I believe it's Heather Beck, it's not the tool, it's the fool. (laughs) So a lot of tools get a bad rep. But it's not, it's it's an inanimate object. It's whoever's hands are on it, right? Who's using it. And if they're abusing it, yes, 100%. You've made, you've made a poor, poor association. So let's move next to a slightly different type of tool, uh, the gentle leader. And, and it's maybe close cousin, the halty, which quite honestly, as somebody who's not in the, the dog training business, I always mix them up all the time. I don't even really know, you know, what one is versus the other. So maybe you could talk to those two and maybe compare and contrast those two different devices. Okay, perfect. I love it. Because one I'm a fan of and one I'm not. Ah. <laughs> I'm a fan of Halties. I'm not a fan of de- gentle leaders. Okay. They're both tools for using over the muzzle. So a gentle leader is one, very smart marketing and naming on their part (laughs) because it makes the owner feel good, right? Gentle leader, like, oh, I I will very gently, um, not forcefully, right? Use this training tool. But the difference between them, the gentle leader and the halty is the gentle leader has like a little cinch. It's just a plastic piece over the muzzle portion of the tool. It's a safety precaution, which I understand, so that the dog can't use its paws and get out of the muzzle piece. But what it actually ends up preventing is being able to apply pressure and release. Uh, it's just constant, constant. Whatever well, you, whatever you, it's set at, it's, it's... Yeah. So if you set it really tight, yeah, you're keeping it too tight. Most people don't do that because they're going to know. Your dog should be able to open their mouth, right, and pant with that on. So it's not that it's necessarily holding constant pressure. When you do go to ask a dog to follow or to pay attention to or anything. If you're using anything on the leash, really because of that cinch spot, your only option is to pull to the side. So you're just going to move move the mouth. And so you're going to tweak the neck with that. Conversely, a halty doesn't have that cinched plastic piece. So you can pull up or to the side. And what it's going to do is close in on the muzzle 
And then once you release pressure, open back up. And that's actually a very instinctual way to communicate to your dog because a mom with her pups, if the pup is carrying on, maybe it's whining and, and being anxious, she, she would go over and, and cup the dog's muzzle with her mouth and then release and cup and release and cup and release and apply that pressure and release to calm the puppy down. So it's a very powerful spot to use a tool there as communication. You want to make sure you're using it properly and communicating effectively. If we're pulling the face to the side, we're not really applying pressure and release. We're just changing the body position, which can cause neck issues versus the halty itself is going to close in on the mouth and relax. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's that's really great. I've never heard it described quite like that before. You know, I know it's not the tool, it's the fool, yeah, but... Let's get controversial um, here. But, you know, there are a couple that, you know, probably aren't the right fit for a lot of dogs and owners uh, unless they are properly understood and properly applied. So let's first talk about harnesses and then we'll finish off um, with e-collars. So uh, you see a lot of dogs out there on harnesses, um, particularly a lot of bigger dogs or dogs that seem to have a lot of strength and energy. What's your perspective on harnesses and, and if there's a place for them in the training tool world? If you think about what a harness is intended for its purpose, who uses them? Huskies to pull sleds. <laughs> when you're strapping something onto your dog's body like that, you're actually going to communicate to them, pull. So that first and foremost is going to be against you. Now, I also understand that there are different harness types. So they're the ones that clip onto the back that 100% your dog is going to pull you forward on. And your dog's going to be ahead of you instead of beside you when something is hooked onto their neck or their muzzle. And so if your only option is to pull back, I always tell clients pulling back on the leash is like pressing on the gas. So they're going to move forward with more intensity. And so having that on a big, strong dog is not ideal. There are the harnesses that clip onto the front and do apply a bit of pressure so that you, sh you should have more control with the dog. And I have a bit of a bugaboo with those because really in essence what you're doing is limiting the dog's gait so the the size of their steps their that they can yeah, be taking yeah, yeah the stride. Of their stride thank you and so you're just making you're making it uncomfortable for the dog which i don't really like again you're miscommunicating too you're putting something onto their back onto their body which is going to promote pull remember we're dealing with instinctual animals animals that have been bred for purpose so if we're doing that with a bernie's mountain dog of course that dog is going to want to pull and do work just like with a husky too and then we're we're saying i'm just going to make it really hard for you to do that though so that it gives me a sense of control mm, i'm not cool with that if we go back to the the top of this episode where we talked about what the criteria for an effective training tool was, and the, that's the ability to consistently, clearly, concisely communicate your intentions to your dog. The very nature of a harness limits your ability to do all of those things. It, it's 100%. not. It's not a very good. Uh, it's not a very good telephone line to yeah. your dog. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's finish off with maybe the two more controversial or or perhaps least understood tools that are available to people. The prong collar. Let's start there. The prong collar. I mean. Time and place is really important. Like for what dog, for what human, you need to assess 
the situation and if it's going to be a fit. I haven't used prong collars with my training, but I have been educated on how to properly use them and when maybe it's a good idea. It might be the tool that you want to lean on. Say if you have an elderly client who has a strong breed dog, we want to make sure that the human feels empowered and that they have control and can be safe with this dog. So a prong collar does apply pressure and release. It looks harsh because of its literal prongs, right? That go into the dog's neck and then relax. I have been educated enough to learn that that is not a tool that you want to use with a dog that has reactivity on leash because what you're mimicking being bit around the neck, right? Having teeth go in, being like, don't you do it, and then relax. So it's a little bit extreme. If you had an extreme puller and a weakened owner, right? Or someone who might be mobility restraint, desperate to make it work with with their dog, then that might be a tool that you lean on. Is that fair to say? Does does that make sense? It does. It, it makes sense. And, and I, I just want to clarify something you just said, you know, kind of emulating a dog, putting its teeth on another dog. As, as harsh as that might sound. It's nature. It's nature. So when you slow down, and you showed me some really interesting videos, when you slow down a dog correcting another dog in the wild, you know, they will very precisely you know, apply pressure with their teeth to another dog without breaking the skin. The intent is not to bite and cause injury, but rather to apply that pressure to elicit the response they want and release. So this isn't about causing harm to the dog. It's about communicating to the dog. But I think a lot of people maybe misunderstand it and use way too much pressure. So this feels like a tool that if you're going to use it, you a need to really understand how it's supposed to work, how to use it and get some professional yeah. training on how to apply it properly so that you're not using it as a blunt instrument. Again, too, I'd, I'd go back to like with the Martingale collar, you need a dog that can handle a correction. It shouldn't be on a really soft, sensitive dog that can backfire really quickly. So if we have a dog that's really thick headed, isn't going to take direction easily, we really need to break through in some point, then you might want to use a, a tool that, that can help you with, with more effective communication. And that's probably a good segue into to the last tool we'll talk about today, which is the, the e-collar, not referred to as a shock collar, an e-collar, electronic collar. Can you talk about sort of your understanding of e-collars and how that's progressed over time from, from you know, early days as a dog owner, then trainer, and now somebody who's been trained on e-collar? 100%. I like nothing more than kind of debunking myths about e-collars because like with crates, I was super against them. And I was like, I would never, because it, it, they got such a bad rap, right? And they were called shock collars. And if you used one on a dog, you were just so cruel. And it was because we conceived it so much as being a punitive measure for communicating with dogs and I learned um, through many trainers that it can be used very very gently you want to work with a professional you want to find the right e-collar to use because not all e-collars are created equally and work with it and train your dog properly on it one trainer said to me one time and I believe it was Colleen Steckloff who said consider it as a cell phone on your dog it's your dog's pager so if you need to get in contact with your dog and they're 12 feet from you, you have a way to redirect them and get their attention back to you. 
when I choose an e-caller to work with, I make sure that I have one with a lot of settings. There are ones that have like a setting one, two, three, four. Well, those are gonna be big jumps between each section from a little tap on the shoulder to like- A shove. A, yeah, a shove and then a punch in the face, right? And so if I have one that is like from a one to a hundred, I'm not using it so I can get up to a hundred. I'm using it so that I could go, okay, the dog doesn't pay attention to level one, two, three, four, but you know what? I get their attention at six. So six for that dog is a tap on the shoulder. And then you have more leeway too, where a tap on the shoulder when there's no distractions going on is really easy. But say their attention goes somewhere else, we need to do a little bit more, like a little bit of a shake on the shoulder. Be like, hey, excuse me, pay attention. So I might dial it up to eight. Right. We have so much flexibility, so much room for that. And again, like I use, so I did use e-collar training for Thai because... I wanted to be able to do off-leash with this dog and I just knew nothing else was getting me there. And so that was just another layered tool that I could lean on to achieve those results. And I want to be able to, as a trainer, give clients the results that they want. With Ty, I coupled e-collar with follow the leader and got an amazing heel and then was able to drop the leash, do off-leash hikes with e-collar and drop leash as backup. And what blew my mind is I actually found a tool for a sensitive dog that allowed him to be really, really dialed in with me. It became to me very obvious I wasn't using a tool that worked for me so much as I found what really worked for him. And it was like a weight had been lifted. And I was like, oh my God, now we can have communication. So I started going ham on it. I was like, this is so cool. I can teach him stop. I can teach him sit. I can teach him go to your place. All of these things with a simple tap. And I was so concerned because I knew he was sensitive. I was like, I can't put him into shutdown. I don't want to overuse this tool. Other thing too with e-collar that I want to point out to people, and this is how it was first introduced to me. I was asked to put put the collar on myself and tell the trainer at what point I felt pressure, right? And so it was a workshop and everybody got a chance to hold it. And what was crazy is everybody's pressure point was different where I think I felt a level 12 and someone else didn't feel until 22. And so it's just a current, it's just energy. You know, when you feel it, right. And it it wasn't shock. The trainer didn't punitively correct me either. They weren't like, Hey, I'm going to make you, and now you're going to feel what 60 feels like. Like, no, it's a tool that totally can be misused. If you use it effectively and at low levels, like you can just use it for redirect. So just kind of wrapping up all of these training tools we've talked about, it sounds to me like a key theme is you want to pick the the tool that's right for you, right for your dog. And I want to talk about that in one quick sec. But something that I heard you say through all of these is that the, the key to being effective with any of these training tools is using the least amount of pressure necessary to communicate or convey the message and intention that you're trying to get through to your dog, whether it's pressure you apply through a slip or a little tap tap on uh, Ty's pager or his (laughs) e-collar. Least amount of pressure is is the right amount of pressure. Mm -hmm. That's 100%. And I want to be able to literally whisper to my dog, hey, come here. Right, instead of, you get here now. Whisper to my dog. I love that. Okay, so so two final uh, questions. Hopefully, we can we can tackle these real quick. The first is, you know, how do you choose the right tool? Just are there a couple of tips uh, that you can give to people around where to enter the spectrum of training tools? Talk to a professional and assess what what it is you need help working with. 
I use over the muzzle for a lot of, so like a halty or figure eight with the slip for dogs with anxiety because anything over the muzzle helps to calm or physically strong dogs. Muzzle is extra help with that, with communication. Um, like I said before, e-collar if you want to be able to do off-leash or if you feel really uncomfortable with doing any sort of correction physically with your dog, it gives you a bit of an option to, to do that a little bit more removed. And, and to knowing your dog, know your dog's sensitivity level and what they can handle and making sure you're introducing whatever tool you use in a positive way. Well, that was going to be my last question, Liz. A couple of tips for introducing a new tool and making sure that it's, it's a positive experience for both dog and owner. Any tool that I'm using in a low distraction area, first and foremost, to introduce, if I'm asking the dog to do anything like accept a halty over the nose and they're uncomfortable about it, I use food. And I ask the dog to essentially put it on themselves. Slip, I use in the house, just teaching sit, just basic pressure and release before I even take it out on a walk. It sounds like you could use some of the similar principles to what we talked about in the episode about crating introducing it to your dog gradually in stages having the dog you know wear the collar in the house or having the dog even just smell the collar or or the leash and then gradually working up to working the dog on the tool as opposed to saying okay we're going to put this on and we're going to go for a walk right away and that that might be a very drastic introduction for sure and if you want to think about it in any way tools are human made right no dog is going to leash up another dog and be like hey you're walking with me so and they're all foreign to them. So be understanding of that, that it might take some adjustment at first. They might be un- unfamiliar with it, thus uncomfortable with it. So just go slow. Thanks for the great tips, Liz. I think this is a, a really great episode. We could probably have spent three times as much time talking about this. What I'd love to hear from our listeners is what tool are you using and how do you feel about it? What tools have you tried in the past? Hit us up on Instagram and leave us your feedback at Honest to Dog Podcast or drop an episode comment on Apple Podcasts or in Spotify. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much, Jeff, for doing this podcast with me. I loved it. Because the mail never stops. Are you writing me a thank you note? Email. Telephones, fax machines. You've got mail. It's time to look in the Honest to Dog mailbox and see what questions we have from you, our listeners. This question comes from Meg W. Here's what Meg's got to say. When you have an extremely timid dog in the house that needs lots and lots of confidence, is it good to allow them to be in their crate for long periods of time? Or... Should they be encouraged to have more time outside than in it? With rescue dogs, if they've been passed around a lot or lived in a shelter or several foster homes, they can be slow to trust, right? And so giving them breathing room is okay. So it's not the end of the world. If they if they feel safe in their crate and they're going in there on their own, allow that. Again, don't force things. With a dog like that, if they did come up to to you and showed interest, you could totally reward with like food. With really timid dogs, I do use food a lot because sometimes giving affection physically with pets can be overwhelming for them. They're like, whoa, 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 I wasn't ready for that yet. So just like keeping little treats in your pocket or something and the dog shows interest, uses their nose, approaches you, then just like open it up, offer it. And again, don't make a big deal. Don't make eye contact, anything like that. Not like, who's a good boy? Just again, no big deal. And then if they choose to retreat back to their crate, that was a great so that was a great social experience that was positive and rewarded, but we're not forcing anything on the dog. Allow them their own time to do it. What do you think about 
you know, with, with this dog, you know, Meg's really trying to understand like what's the balance of time in crate versus out of crate. So what do you think about allowing your dog to be in their crate with the door open so that they can make a bit of a choice whether to, to, to put them literally put themselves out there and, and come out of their, their shell versus keeping them confined to the crate or, or is that not a good idea? What it sounds like is this dog is going in there on its own, totally leave the door open. Um, so long as you don't have other dogs or children that are going to go and maybe invade the dog's space. If that was the case, I'd keep it closed so that the dog does have solitude if that's what it's craving. But again, if you're going to close the door, make sure that the dog has gotten exercise so that we're not locking in a lot of energy in that, in that space and we're not leaving them unattended for 12 hours in a crate, like absolutely not. But if you have fulfilled their needs and they want to have a little rest, a downtime in there, leaving the door open, that's fine. Thanks for the great answer, Liz. And thank you again to Meg for the great question. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. If you've got an idea for an episode or a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear covered. Or a question you want answered by yours truly. Drop us an email, hello at honestdogpodcast.com or slide right into our DMs on Instagram. Slip and slide. (laughs) Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button and leave us a comment or a review. We'd love to hear from you. We release a new podcast weekly. Follow us on Instagram at honesttodogpodcast. Honest to Dog Podcast is hosted by Liz Foley and Jeff Gadway. The show is engineered, edited, and produced by me, Timothy Musa. Support for the podcast is provided by The Dog House. For all things training and daycare, head over to their website, doghaus.ca.